Welcome to the Synthetic Biology Podcast, brought to you by the UK Centre for Mammalian Synthetic Biology at the University of Edinburgh. In this episode, we talk to Drs. Jane Calvert and Rob Smith, who work in the Department of Science, Technology and Innovation Studies, also known as STS. Jane and Rob talk about the Crossing Kingdoms Project, which is part of their work in the Centre for Mammalian Synthetic Biology. But we also cover Jane's work on synthetic yeast, funded by the BBSRC, and Rob's work on gene drives, funded by the British Academy. We chat about the social, political and ethical dimensions of synthetic biology research, and discuss the fundamental value of interdisciplinary collaboration. I work in the area of science and technology studies, and this is a field where we study science and technology, but we're not scientists or technologists or engineers. Uh, we're actually from the social sciences, but some people come from philosophy or history. So it's kind of quite an interdisciplinary perspective on science and technology. And I come, I bring kind of interest in the sociology of science, the philosophy of science and science policy. Yeah, so I also work in science and technology studies. Originally, I trained as a biologist, um, and this is something that's also quite common in our field. So we kind of move over from the sciences, um, but have always had this kind of interest in, I suppose, like you would call it like humanities. So after my undergrad, I kind of realized I didn't want to work in a lab for the rest of my life, but I quite liked policy and um, so I've transitioned away from that. But I've always been interested in the biological sciences over any of the other things yes so i think like we don't just like go to the my, most hype or most controversial field we actually normally have like really kind of quite sort of detailed interests in how the science is done in that field and like rob said that often comes from starting out with a real interest in the science so what i really love about being in science technology studies is that in the morning i can be reading a philosophy article and in the afternoon i could be reading an article about genomes and then in the evening i can be um <laughs> watching telly no <laughs> reading something else about something else you know so um it allows you to kind of continue traversing across disciplines and other, yeah and, and i mean some people say it's a bit like being a theatre critic or a restaurant critic like you 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 appreciate what you're studying but you simultaneously uh want to kind of um apply a critical lens to it Mm -hmm. yeah so so would you say that synthetic biology lends itself quite well to this type of study then you know sort of looking at the social implications and the cultural implications of the work that synthetic biologists are doing Yes, so synthetic biology is definitely interdisciplinary. And I think this is one of the reasons why I became interested in it. Also because they're very open to people from different disciplines. So engineers are talking to computer scientists, talking to biologists. So everyone is kind of talking to someone who doesn't know their field. So that makes it very open. Um, But I don't think we're just interested in the social or cultural dimensions of these fields, although this is a difficult this is a kind of tricky point because we don't separate the social from the scientific and that sounds a bit weird but actually we think that scientific knowledge is kind of inherently social it's produced by people um it's driven by kind of agendas and i mean not to want to bring in covid but we can see this at the moment you know all these competing scientific claims how politicians are arguing for some and not the other so this is a really nice example at this moment of how scientific knowledge is not one thing it's contested it's influenced by um agendas and priorities and yeah no that's a that's a really good point and one of the things that i'm just trying to wrap my head around at the moment is how um this collaboration looks so 
would you come on board sort of early in a project you know if someone is writing a grant to do something would you have a role at that stage or is it the case that you come in a bit later down the road you know maybe when things are up and running maybe when things are in the lab I really think the earlier the better so we've known the synthetic biologists at Edinburgh for a long time because they're just like open and friendly and they have been for years and so most of the things we've been involved in has been at the grant writing stage which means that we can kind of put forward our own research agenda um, at the beginning because we are um, yeah we're researchers we do our own research Uh, but then again also I like riffing off what they do as well so with the synthetic yeast project that I studied I didn't know much about yeast or yeast biology so I did kind of in a sense follow and develop my interests around what they were doing to re-engineer this organism. Yeah can you actually explain a bit more about that project actually because it's really quite fascinating. Yeah so the project is an attempt to build an entirely synthetic version of the yeast genome of the yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae which is like very familiar brewers or bakers yeast Um, and it's kind of audacious in a sense. It's like, we're going to build a new genome. We're going to build a better genome. So a lot of it involves reducing and shortening uh, existing genomes because they have lots of redundant, well, to be honest, yeast doesn't have so much redundant DNA, or is it even redundant, uh, as mammalian cells do. But, you know, so so kind of getting rid of, of unneeded um, excess DNA, but also um, introducing mechanisms to be able to evolve the DNA at will. So there's a system kind of engineered into the yeast genome called Scramble, which al- allows the scientists to kind of add a chemical and then force a kind of evolution of the yeast genome to produce new variants. So um, it's a real idea of kind of rebuilding, redesigning yeast according to our desires as human beings. Mm, Yeah, yeah, you know, it's definitely one of those things that even as someone outside the field, you can immediately see that, you know, okay, it's very interesting and it's very cool to be able to, to modify a genome in that way or you know, to sort of force evolution to go in a a certain direction, you know, that might have benefits for humans or for a particular, I don't know, task that you want the organism to perform. But I think there must be a lot to consider in terms of, you know, how do you, how do you control that? And when it comes to modifying a genome, you know, how, how much can you edit a genome before it's no longer the thing that you started with? if you know what I mean. No, exactly. And these are the types of things I find really interesting. When is it a new species? How do you how do you kind of assess whether or not it is a new species? There are so many different criteria for species. Many of them involve kind of mating, but then yeast can be both sexual and asexual. So, you know, and then there's like little bits of the genome which are used as a kind of barcode for species identity. And they've actually cut them out of the Saccharomyces cerevisiae just because they don't really do anything. And then you're like, well, is it a new species then? Um, so I find those questions, yeah, really interesting. And a lot of the synthetic yeast project is actually about understanding yeast better. So if you take away... Uh, loads of um, what you consider to be unnecessary genes does the yeast then die and then that teaches you more about the yeast but also the thing that's kind of I guess interesting is the you, you use the word control so like that's often the kind of language that sits behind a lot of engineering a lot of biotechnology this idea that we can control yeast and I think one of the things that I wasn't involved in this entire yeast project I guess but I think one of the things that's notable when you listen to the talks of the scientists doing that is that they kind of have to give up a lot of control to be able to do the the work so like a lot of what they're doing is just like 
there's design choices and they've changed the kind of the way the genome goes together and kind of the way that it works. But basically they just then go like, and like, let it go. And so they're kind of giving up loads of control to kind of then still have this idea of this idea that they're kind of rationally designing or kind of engineering. And I think that that's one of the things that Jane is interested in. Yeah. It's, yeah. So what does that mean for the idea of engineering? If you're letting evolution do it and you're kind of, you know, giving over control to evolutionary forces, are you still designing? And what we love to do in STS is really kind of challenge categories, I suppose. So when people say this is natural, this isn't, we, we, we won't be like saying yes, it is or no, it is. We'll be kind of saying, well, what does that mean? What comes into that kind of word? Uh, but also like Rob's been doing some work on gene drives. And I think with gene drives, you want you don't want them to go off and do their own thing necessarily. Um, you know, so there are definitely question circumstances where control is really important, I think. So basically there is this proposition that you can get naturally occurring, they're called selfish genetic elements. So these are things which would kind of normally, you would expect them to be evolved out over time because they're kind of, they confer like kind of fitness burden um, and they don't, they kind of persist through time. So that's quite strange. And so that's been termed gene drive. There are these naturally occurring things which should disappear over time, but that persist. And there's obviously been a lot of hype around CRISPR and things like that and these new gene editing technologies. But one of the things that it actually has made possible is the ability to, to kind of build these selfish genetic elements artificially and begin to choose what traits you want to pass down through generations and which ones you kind of might not want to. So scientists have begun to think about, can we force things like sterility down through populations? And the thing that they want to use it for really is for basically for pests and things that for organisms that we as humans have decided are pests or are problems. So things like in the US, there's a lot of work on mice um, because they carry ticks and so they cause Lyme disease and things like that. Um, and then the other big one is um, is malaria, so it's mosquitoes. There's a lot of work at the moment to build these genetically modified organisms that will spread traits, so sterility traits, for instance, from one generation of mosquito to another generation. And I just think like, so there are these kind of status of tech, there are these kind of classes of technologies that people have begun to build, which you can see why it's a really, you know, solving malaria is clearly a good idea, but you can also see how this just inherently seems like it could be a terrifying thing to do. And so when you do that, you often get lots of controversy and contestation and, and also lots of calls for public dialogue and public discussion. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. And I think what you say about, um, it's seeming, you know, you can clearly see the benefits, but also, you know, genetically modifying things and then releasing them into the world. It does seem like a, a scary thought because, you know, say that you, you do go ahead with it and you do decide to do something like that. Um, is there any retrieving it? You know, if, if it turns out that it wasn't a great idea, or it's not going to work. Um, what, what's the plan then? So it's like, is it reversible or not? Yeah, we often think about technologies as like, they're just a thing which we have and they're kind of, people talk about them as though they're like inevitable. But actually, if you begin to 
unpack how they're made, you can see lots of choices and decisions that, that would shape the kind of technology that we have and then shape the kind of political and environmental consequences of, of that technology. So gene drive, the way that I described it makes it sound like it's always going to be irreversible, but you could design it in ways which would mean that it was local and that it, it wasn't irreversible. And, and that's a decision. And that's a decision that affects the way you would design the technology. And so part of what we try and do is is show that there is these there are these kind of decision points that will affect how the technology is built what it will do and then question you know who should be making those decisions i think this point about inevitability is really important because scientific and technological development is often presented as if they're inevitable but i think one of the things sts does is says we always have choices um so for example with kind of large-scale synthetic genomics people are deciding what organisms of the future might look like uh, but who is going to be involved in that discussion is that just a question for the the kind of technical experts and i think one of the things that's really interesting about synthetic biology is because it's about design it's about choices because whenever you design something you, you can always make choices about you know what is a good design who's a design for should we use this design or that design so it kind of has an intentionality to it so one thing that i think actually leads on quite nicely from that is your involvement in the crossing kingdoms project because that's something that creates certainly a lot of discussion and there were a lot of choices made there so can you talk a little bit about that yeah well it actually kind of started serendipitous serendipitously um at a conference um where susan rosser and alistair elphick who are the director and co-director of the mammalian center um and myself and another social scientist and also a, a couple of biological artists we were all at this conference and one of the presentations talked about fusing i think it was yeast mammalian and uh, viral cells three kingdoms of life like so i think she wanted to make a, a yeast ebola human hybrid <laughs> and the artists were just like whoa this is something we would like to investigate they're called yunat zur and oran katz from the university of western australia and they are like very well-known biological artists who um have kind of explored questions through biological kind of questions through their art for many years but since myself and alistair kind of knew them already from another project called synthetic aesthetics we talked about the possibility of doing something with them again. I particularly like working at these intersections of disciplines because people just raise questions that you would never raise yourself. So having artists, having synthetic biologists, having social scientists all in the room together, you have these conversations which are really interesting because you're all coming from different perspectives. And so I find that really valuable in itself. So I think Oren, one of the artists, has quite a good way of talking about this, which is like synthetic biology and biology and biological sciences have always kind of brought these new things into the world and we don't as a society really have a good way of talking about them like we don't really know what to call them we don't really even have kind of a vocabulary to be able to kind of make sense of these things and i think that's what crossing kingdoms is really about there's been a big backdrop to a lot of the work we do which is to kind of think about like well what's the impact of it what's the point of it and a lot of it is justified in terms of kind of making science ethical or making it responsible or making it publicly acceptable and to then try and kind of quantify that. And I think one of the one of the things that's really good about this project is it kind of resists that because it's 
clearly lots of things have happened. You know, we've done kind of exhibitions. People have come and engaged with the ideas that are associated with synthetic biology, but we haven't really changed the science in any way. Like we've not made it responsible or ethical or anything like that. But it, it, I think it does begin to contribute to this kind of broader public debate about the kind of things that someone is going to ultimately end up creating somewhere in the world. Huge thanks to Jane and Rob for such a brilliant discussion and for giving us some food for thought when it comes to scientific innovation. Be sure to join in to future episodes of the Synthetic Biology Podcast. Our work is funded by the BBSRC, EPSRC and MRC and the UK Research Council's Synthetic Biology for Growth Programme.